to the What the Data podcast with your hosts, Mitch and Leo. You are listening to another episode of What the Data podcast. I want to start with a small apology. In the past few weeks, we have not released episodes in the manner that we were planning to, so every second week. Mikael and I were a little bit overwhelmed with work, and we needed to attend that. We are back on track, and I hope more episodes are going to come very soon. In today's episode, we will talk to Jean de Bresserie, a product lead at Zalando, biggest fashion e-com in Europe, solving the marketing automation challenge to optimize each euro spent to maximize the return. With Jean, we have talked about marketing automation future with GDPR, what companies should do if they wish to start automation tomorrow, how to trust your models and data during a pandemic when everything goes like crazy out there. And I must say, in a personal note, I really enjoyed this conversation with Jean, who I think is one of the leading minds when it's coming to combining tech and business to drive better marketing automation. If you wish to learn more, tune in to this episode. Hi, hi. I'm happy to have you on the show today. How is it going? Uh, very good. Thanks for having me, Lior. It's been a long time. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a very long time. I'm so excited actually to have you here because I think that you are among the very few people who understand how to work with marketing automation today. <laughs> yeah, okay. I don't know if I'm one of the very few, but thank you very much for this introduction. I take it at heart. Yes, thanks. <laughs> so tell us a little bit, what are you doing today and how do you drive automation in your organization? Uh, yes, so I'm uh, leading the Facebook performance team at Zalando. So I've been doing that for a few years. I'm actually a product manager. What we do in the team is we're responsible for all of the performance marketing on Facebook in Zalando globally, so all of the markets. And my team is composed of product managers and engineers. And what we do is we automate decisions and marketing at scale. And we try to make, in parallel, we try to make the best investment decisions and build campaigns that would work for the entirety of Europe for us. So as a product manager doing performance, did you feel any gap when you started doing that? Or was it an easy intro for you? Uh, well, um, I, so I come from a world where I was, I was a product manager before uh, working on, you know, front-end tools. And it was already, I was working with marketing departments, but then you do different, you look at different types of data. So uh, you do a lot of user testing qualitative data, you look at hot jar, like heat maps and this kind of things, and you pretty much try to understand what's happening with the customers. And when you start doing marketing, you look at a lot more quantitative data, very big scales, very big numbers. You're looking at your impression numbers and you're trying to build features and build products that are based on you know, really bigger sets of data. And automation is the same. So the first thing that we're working on is uh, automating decision-making for investment. So how much should you invest in campaigns? And, you know, there's no front end to it. You're just looking at data and making decisions based on what your data scientists say, which was a completely different exercise than what I was doing before. So you're trusting your data scientists to actually tell you if your performance are good or not. What data actually do you receive on a daily basis? So what are you looking at daily that can help you to, to make the decision? 
if you should invest more or less? Yes. So the, the, the data set that we look at, of course, you have all of the performance metrics from the channel. So regardless from the channel that we're using, right, you have your impressions, cost per impressions, cost per mill, CPC, cost per order, and everything that the channel gives you. And that's part one. Uh, you can add to this more uh, signals that you look into because you can receive them via API. And then part two is everything that we see on our side. And we have teams that are actually in charge of our attribution model and reallocating value to the campaigns. Uh, we add a notion of customer lifetime value on top of the reattributed metrics that we see. Uh, we also have a forecast for prospected return on investment because once, you know, at Zalando, if we sell something, uh, we have to take into account the return rate of items before we can uh, know what is actually left for us in terms of sales. And so we have to forecast this return rate and the actual value of marketing today so that we can make a decision before the return actually occurs. So there's this on top of the um, attribution and the lifetime value. And then finally, we reach a point where we can see a return on, on investment. And on top of this, and that's the last step, we add correction for the level of incrementality of our campaigns. So it's a very long funnel. It's pretty complex. There's several teams maintaining it. And yes, on a daily basis, what we get as the output is the return on, uh, on investment of each of our campaigns. And we use this as another input metric for our model that decides how much we invest in the campaigns. I hope this is clear. I can also dive deeper. So if we're looking at uh, your return of investment, so ROI, is this a forecasted ROI or is yes. it just taking the measures that you you just mentioned and doing some kind of calculation on your orders from a certain day? No, yes, it's a, because of course, you know, as I said, right, if you sell 100 euros worth of items as an e-com, you have to take into consideration how much will come back to you before you can know what's left. So the ROI for us is always forecasted. And then it takes a certain amount of time before we can look back and say, okay, this is what we forecasted and this is where the actual value is. And so we can, you know, our models adjust themselves because we look at the difference between the actuals and the forecast to make sure our forecast is very accurate. And that's one of the goals of the evaluation teams to make sure that the forecast is as close to, uh, as possible to reality. Interesting. So in the field that you're working today, you're creating quite a lot of, of creatives or is it purely using data? So using the products and based on it, it's promoting or not promoting stuff. So we do, we do both, right? So there's different types of automation that we, that we work on um, as a team because there's the, the one part is high level decision making understanding what's the value of your campaigns and then being able to say how much you should invest in a campaign. And that's, so there's a very long data infrastructure behind it, very complex. It's also a very big investment for even a company like Zalando. It's been years that we're working on this and fine-tuning the model just so that we can make the correct investment decisions, which is the key. It's really the key to understanding performance in big online players. And then in the team, on top of this, we have a layer, which is, okay, what creatives do we run? What are the campaigns and what should we automate? I mean, there's a lot of it that is already done because it's an e-com, so you can use advanced products that are also automated, like dynamic ads. But we do work also on automation for um, selecting items, making sure we can present ads that people will like, and then op optimizing them over time. So if we're looking today at your learning curve in the past three years, has it shifted a lot from the way that you're looking at data or the way that you're understanding the use of data? Many things have changed. And I think what I mentioned before is that you stop looking at qualitative and you look at 
quantitative, very high level, lots of uh, numbers. But I think the main revolution for marketing and my thinking on data is that you can't trust what the channel is telling you. So having only the story of the channel that tells you, okay, here's your return on advertising spend means nothing until you have checked it for incrementality. And Zalando's big differentiating proposition in performance marketing is to look at incrementality. And that means checking what the causal impact of marketing is. Because you have all of these stories of companies like Uber did it, and I think Yahoo in the beginning, you know, understanding that they were spending huge amounts of money on search ads that had zero incrementality. So they were seeing 100 million euros spent or dollars spent, zero revenue for it. Need other tools to actually check it. That's that's super interesting because if we're looking at most companies out there that at least at Facebook and Google today as a, as a big channels, they're trying to close the market, right? They're trying to close the opportunity to marketeers to actually have control over their marketing. What is your what is your view about it, actually? And so, I mean, personally, I, I tend to agree with that statement, but I had a more I, I had a, I had a closer view to what you're saying maybe two years ago because um, the features on Facebook are really going in the way of mass market and mass automation by default. So, if you take you know all of the creative optimization features that they're doing, they're going in this in the direction of GDN as well, which is saying okay. Just give us the assets and then we'll figure out what performs best. And we won't even tell you how that works. Like we're just going to optimize it on our end. Uh, Facebook is also a very big proponent of saying only do broad targeting. Don't, you know, don't play with the targeting. Don't do anything. Just target broad. That's what works best. And my view on this was that, you know, it's a, it's a way for them to limit your capacity to tailor ads and do things very refined. But I have to say in the past two years, like we still can do quite a lot of things with Facebook's API, I think more than with Google. So we're lucky in that sense, like in display, Facebook still allows you to do quite a lot of things. There's a very healthy ecosystem of third parties. And there's also places now it kind of moves where automation is going because if you can rely on Facebook to do ad set budget allocation, for instance, and they do that automatically and you can check that it's okay, there is one less decision you have to make. And it opens an opportunity somewhere else. So for instance, creative decision, like the process to understand what's going to be the performance of the creatives. There's a lot of new companies being built here in that very space just to understand, okay, can we build models to see the future prospective performance, you know, estimate the performance of the creatives before you upload them and then use that to just take better creatives to your ads on average, right? So that all of the creatives you put inside your campaigns are better. And I think so it kind of moves where you can automate. And that's how I see it now. There's always kind of a space where there can be innovation. It's just that it gets reintegrated later on in the big channels. Are you afraid that at some point you will just drop a budget like Google tried to do it a couple of years ago that you just give them the budget and they optimizing everything for you? And you don't have any control over the campaigns. Are you afraid that you don't have <laughs> I mean, that's definitely the direction they're working in. That's that's for sure. And the way to understand it for me is, they do that because they have millions of customers, right? So at our end, or if you're very advanced in marketing, this is annoying because they're removing your decision-making power and they're saying, "Don't do anything. We're automating it for you." But if you're thinking of the small shop, this is the story of Facebook. They're also always saying that if you, if you think about the small shop that's opening um, a Facebook store and wants to spend a bit of money on the business manager, then you're 50 years old, 
shop owner doesn't know how to maximize you know its revenue so a feature that yeah. everything for him or her is extremely good and for us it's a different story and i think i mean these companies are aware of it they, they know that if they do a, a feature that helps the smbs a lot it's not going to necessarily help the big businesses and i think they're going to need to have kind of tiered approach where they can serve uh, big businesses and companies that are very advanced with data a bit differently than what they do SMBs, which, you know, the feeling is that they kind of have a one-size-fits-all solution and they just ship something so that it makes it easier for the long tail of advertisers, but it's not helping the big players. So if we're talking more about marketing automation, do you think this is something that small companies should go into this direction? Should they try to even automate their processes? Is it worth it? Yes. I mean, a pretty simple answer is that it's always worth it. Uh, but I would, it's um, also a mitigated answer. So I'd be uh, measured in what I would say because it really depends what type of data the company have or companies have. What type of marketing are they doing? You know, is it automatable? Is it easy to automate? Because a small company oftentimes doesn't have enough resources to have a full-time Python backend or full-stack engineer working not on their product, but working on their attribution, for instance. And it's a very big decision to make when you're a small company. But I think the earlier you make the decision to automate your marketing, the better. And I would start always by having a good stack for your data. That's the most important. So if you run your attribution, once you, you get to the size where it's uh, okay to do that, or if you clean your data properly and you can look into it and make correct decisions, that's the most important. I think most companies even medium size don't always do that correctly like they do that or they do that very late and i think that you know if you do that five years after you were created and you already have a big marketing team it's a bit too late like you're slowing down the work of marketers by not having the proper data mm -hmm. so i i like that you touched the python developer for for starting creating automation can you maybe describe how a marketing automation team should look like so if somebody wants to start it tomorrow what does he need to to have in his checklist Uh, so if you're doing if you're doing that for all of your channels, it's a bit different than if you're specializing it for a uh, you know channel specific. But I would say you just start by looking at what are your top channels, what their APIs look like, and what is it you know what are the main buckets where you spend your money, and then you can prioritize decisions. So if you have creatives that are similar over time, if you have processes that you can repeat, this is what you can. These are the things that you can automate first. And it's, it's pretty easy to understand Like you can just look at what are the decisions that marketing managers make on a weekly basis and then what is repeated all the time. That's where you automate first. And then there are big decisions or decisions that have, that have bigger impact, such as setting budgets and steering campaigns on a daily basis. A lot of marketers do that. They set their own budgets and they have to check that all the time. And I think that's, you know, most companies automate this pretty early because you don't want to have to make those decisions manually all the time. It's just controlling it with a dashboard is enough. Or no dashboard, by the way, Lior, I know you're a big proponent of that. <laughs> But I think that's enough. Like that's, you know, you can just take the biggest, the most error-prone decisions, the most manual parts, see if they can be automated. Oftentimes, decisions that involve just, you know, if it's a zero or a one, if it's increasing or decreasing a budget, if those decisions are easy to automate. Creative, much more difficult. Like even with several engineers, There's a lot of things that are difficult to automate with creatives because a video is super hard to automate. Creative has so many aspects to it, like understanding the performance of a creative based on just 
the image itself is not enough. So it can become extremely hairy, extremely complex problems very fast. So focus on the simple problems first, the ones that look really like nice wins, like easy wins. And that's where you make the most uh, money for your investment. So if we if we're looking on a team itself, so do you need to have a Python developer? Do you need to have data scientist in there? The data scientist, it's same. It will depend on how much data you have, right? So you start with an engineer because most of the things that you're going to do, an engineer can tackle. It can be, you know, it can be you start with a, a data engineer, full stack engineer, you're set for a long time. Because before you need data science to build advanced models on your steering, there's a few years of time. And also you need big enough stack of data that it just makes sense to have a data scientist, right? And as I discovered, it's just like for marketing decisions, you're just on a daily basis steering your campaigns, then rule-based models will get you very far. You don't really need to have a data scientist from the beginning. That's cool. Because uh, I think that a lot of our listeners struggling with marketing automation, I know that a lot of people want to do marketing automation uh, as they find it as something that can save them a lot of time. Would you say that when you're looking at the path that Zalando have done, or in general, that companies that went into marketing automation, have they actually reduced the amount of complexity of their campaigns or was it actually increasing the complexity? That's a very interesting question. And it's difficult to give it a just like strict answer more simple or more complicated because in some sense, some things got more complicated and some things got simpler. If I look back, like the investment decisions, for instance, are now extremely simple, but they rely on complex models. So you use a lot of data to end up to something. Like the end result is something simple. It's like here is the amount of money you're putting on that campaign, right? It's, it can't not be easier. You have a few hundred campaigns, you know how much you're spending in those campaigns. But it only looks simple because when you look at the the path to get there and how much data goes there. And then we had like three iteration on data science models and the timelines. That's the thing that you need to take in consideration if you want to automate. The timeline to automate something that is uh, just an engineering work or data engineer and the timeline to do data science projects are completely different. Like automating a rule-based system for investment is a, it can be a one month project. Data science, you know, doing the same with data science is going to be six months to one year. Like you need to understand that you're looking at very long shots. So you need to be ready for this. So to answer the question, because I'm, I'm veering off, I would say a lot of things got simpler because we started thinking in terms of, okay, what type of decisions are we making? How do we repeat them? And then how can we automate those things? But there's also layers where it got a bit more complicated because we discovered, okay, if you want to automate creatives, then it gets yeah, as I said, it's just very complex. So you have to break it down in different steps and then you have to do a lot of testing. And that's where we're, I mean, right now, we're at this part where automating creative creation and all of the ads is something we're interested in, but it's still far ahead of us. Like it's a very complex problem. Interesting. So if we looking now, so we had COVID-19 for the past year, how trustful was your data actually, or how could you still doing automation? Was it reflecting in your results in any way? So, I mean, I don't know if you, uh, you know a lot about Zalando's situation now, but uh, COVID did not affect us negatively. We're in e-com and mm -hmm. we thought it was going to be very bad for us because most companies had to cut marketing, for instance, and change everything that we're doing because the situation got so bad for most businesses. But we're extremely lucky Ecom grew uh, throughout the pandemic and 
we are in that position where we actually increased our marketing budget and had more work last half year than we had in the beginning of the year, despite the pandemic. The data that we have is extremely solid, very reliable. So it didn't move so much. Like the pipelines that we look at, they're pretty much unaffected because they only look at aggregated behavioral data of our customers. And that's stable. What did change, there's two things, and they're not related to COVID, actually. The two things that most affected us is uh, having to work from home because then you're isolated. So it's a bit more difficult to adjust what you're doing prioritize and work together. There's a sense that things get a bit lost and it's, I think, tiring over a long time period. So she was really tired by the end of the year. And then the second thing is GDPR compliance, actually. This was a very big piece because last year we released constant banners on app and web. And so you lose a lot of data. And since the new Understanding, so the, the current understanding of GDPR is that you also lose for your opt-outs, you lose all of the Google Analytics data for people who opt out from tracking. That had a big impact on our pipelines because they rely on the entire community data that we see. That, that actually was a very big uh, change. I see. Interesting. But e-commerce in general is growing. And so we had some interviews in, in, in the podcast that people were actually mentioning that due to COVID, the user behavior has changed. And they saw a lot of impulsive buying, which wasn't there at the beginning, especially in the gaming industry. Do you feel it's happening the same at, at Zalando or this is not the case? I can't really answer as a, as a company. Like I can't tell you this is what we see. <laughs> but I can definitely tell you what people are doing around me. And I think, uh, you know, if you're a guy and you're bored, you tend to have played more video games than before if you're in your 20s and like, make this kind of impulse buying that make you happy. And the women I know have turned to online shopping and impulse buying on online shopping. Like really, there's actually a lot of people that were not using Zalando around me or launch that started using it and they started using it heavily because they had more time on their hand. As a marketer, what I can tell you is for sure, people started using Facebook way more. So in terms of behavior, social media grew a lot. A gaming grew mm-hmm. up, social media as well. And what it did is there was lots of traction early in in half one last year. So uh, right after the, the pandemic hit and all of the lockdown started in uh, Q2, roughly, uh, there was a big drop. Everybody stopped spending on social media. But on the, at the same time, a lot more people went on social media. So the adver- there was like this very specific moment in time when it was cheaper to advertise and there was more, you know, it's like, Less competition, more um, screen time, so more spaces for advertising. So basically, it all became cheaper. And yeah, that's, that was a huge opportunity. Um, and I think nobody could just like predict that it was going to go that way. It was, it was really interesting to to notice it. And then, as I said, like as an e-com, Zalando was so lucky that we were in this position where people transitioned from offline to online because no, nothing was open. And yeah, we benefited from this. That's that's cool. It's 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 actually what we we see in uh, many of the interviews that we have. It's it's a returning pattern that the assortment at some point became very cheap and everybody went in like crazy, mm-hmm. and then it became expensive again because everybody realized how the price went down. Yeah, totally true. Yes, there was a kind of gold rush. I had a moment. It was. Uh, it was- <laughs> So before we go, can you tell me a little bit about if you could have changed or keep one KPI, what will be the KPI that you will for sure keep for the rest of the life and you think everybody needs to start using it? In marketing or in general? 
in general? KPI for life, happiness. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but a KPI for marketing, I mean, it's very advanced, but for us, we have correction factors for incrementality. So, you know, we look at ROI. I would say the main KPI is ROI, but the main thing that gets into building it is how incremental your campaigns are. So, you know, the lift value, if you do Facebook, that's what you should be looking at. CPAs, all of these in, uh, very important metrics go into building it, but incrementality is the end goal. Like that, that's where it's at. If your campaigns are not incremental, you shouldn't be advertising. And from the KPIs that you're using today, which one will you kill? Oh, the KPIs I'm using today, which one do I kill? Kill 80% of the, of the KPIs. I mean, like, when you look at, uh, you know, you know this, this theory about vanity metrics in companies and yes. people look at those metrics and they're very happy to report on something and say this, this went that direction and that direction. And we have more users and it's, you know, it's never something that you have done yourself. Like Zalando was an e-com and then COVID hit and we're so, we're very humble by the fact that, okay, we're still growing, but we're trying to take the opportunity to be a good company and a good player in the ecosystem. But we know it's not because we're the best at what we do. It's because of the nature of where we stand that it happened. There's a lot of luck in there. So I think for me, like spend, you know, we look a lot at the spend and then people talk about how much we spend and, and our spend is entirely linked to how much you know, the ROI is. And I don't control it. Like if it increases, it increases. If it decreases, it's not my decision. It's automatically decided. So it's, um, I think it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a fake KPI to say, Hey, how much was our spend? And always look at this. Like this is the uh, golden standard of your activities because then year over year, you need to defend how you're progressing against your spend of last year. And it doesn't really make sense because it's opportunity-based. You know, if like next year, everybody goes out, nobody shops online and the numbers decrease on Zalando and we're going to look at year over year performance and say, I'm not spending enough. It's just, you know, given the environment, that's how it is. Like I can't, I can change that. So I think spend sometimes is a bit of a fake metric. I love it. I love it. Uh, I completely agree. Spending sometimes is a, is a horrible metric to look at and has no connection it, it, it to anything. Up, it also ends up being a war. Like people are like, okay, well, we'll have that much budget. And so you let's spend the money because next year they're not going to give us the budget if we don't spend it. So then you rush for solutions and it's like, okay, it's probably not the main, you know, the best use of, uh, of money to just spend it because it was allocated. Yeah, I completely with you. So before we finishing this episode, would you tell us where can we find you? Well, you can find me. You can find me. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, probably. That's the that's the main place. At Jean Le Bressy. and I don't have. I work with Facebook on Facebook, and I'm doing Facebook marketing. So I'm very difficult to find. Like I don't have Twitter, and I don't have. <laughs> uh, I barely use Facebook as well because <laughs> the people, as I've seen, is the. The people who work the most in social media are the people that are the less active on social media because they're very careful with this. So yeah, LinkedIn is the main place. That's cool. So thank you very much for your time. It's been really pleasure. Uh, any last words you want to tell to the listeners about marketing automation before we go? I think, yeah, everything is, uh, is said. Just focus on your data first. Look at what decisions are the most important to automate and focus on this. It's, uh, it's the main thing. And... Yeah, keep it the main thing for a while because it doesn't change. Like even 10 years into into doing uh, marketing automation, still looking back at the same principles. Amazing. So thank you very much for joining us. It's been really, really pleasure. And until the next episode. Thanks for having me. Bye, Lior. Bye. This is another episode of What the Data Podcast. 
Huge shout out to today's guest. It's been a pleasure having you on board. We hope you too enjoy these episodes. And if you did, please share, subscribe, and rank us so we'll be able to reach more audience. If you didn't, we have a little form in our show notes where you can submit your feedback so we can improve the podcast to fit your requirements. Big thank you to Katie for helping us to coordinate all of this, to Milush who helping us editing these episodes, and Lisa for all the amazing graphics that she's creating for us. If you're interested in joining as a guest to the show, you can also find the link in the show notes. And until the next episode, thank you and bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the What the Data podcast with your hosts, Mitch and Leo.